Reading from Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian court. A devout man who feared God with his, all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out as to whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked to him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For as the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to, ju to be judge of the living and the dead. 
To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the, un, the, among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. Today we uh, kind of officially entered into a new season in the life of our church as we met in between services regarding uh, stepping forward into or seeking to build a new church building, a new church facility, uh, taking the opportunity to be uh, united in that front moving forward. It's certainly a big step forward and it's truly a unique season. And quite frankly, uh, I'm extremely excited about not just us as a church and what we've seen in the life of our church, whether it's uh, India, whether it's uh, seeing the way that our community groups care for the needs of one another. There's so many things I love about our church, but it also makes me excited for the future and about how God might bless us uh, as uh, a church. But at the same time, I also have some reservations because the prospect of building uh, a new church building can also be very distracting. It can be very distracting because it can absorb all of our energy and all of our focus simply into providing and building brick and mortar and losing sight of the people that we are called to be. And we can often mistake the fact that as we see maybe funds come in for a building that that's just simply God blessing us. And yet that can't be true because there are plenty of churches in which they're sitting inside beautiful buildings and they're filled with dead people that haven't spent any time engaging the world with the gospel. The gospel is not on their mouth, and they don't bear witness whatsoever. So how do we know that that won't be true of us? We can be excited now, but how do we stay focused on what truly matters? How do we not build a monument, and how do we actually build and stay focused on a place that provides ministry and mission in Christ to the world? And so I think as we consider Acts 10 this morning, I'd like us to ask a deeper question as we enter into this season. And to consider it even moving forward is how do we know that we are a church worth growing in the first place? Like how do we know that what it is, that the life that we have together, Christ delights in and wants to bless us so that more people could experience that which we have amongst ourselves? How do we know that we are on his page? Because the Great Commission will always ask us the question, are we building what God is building? And the story of uh, Cornelius in Acts 10 is why all of us are here. The issue of you being a Christian as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, was the single biggest issue, the single biggest debate of the early church in its infancy as they had to wrestle with the size and scope of Christ's work and the gospel. And all of this, this debate comes back to the story of Cornelius. It originates in the conversion of the first Gentile. Because his story produced a question amongst the, the Jewish Christians that said, how can we lay, lay claim to any sort of religious superiority when the Gentiles, the other, the ones unlike us, are receiving 
the same gift of the Spirit, the same power that we ourselves have received. So the story continues to come up over and over in uh, the story of Acts and even as we move forward. Because the story of Cornelius confronted the apostles and the early church leaders with the, the, the sheer height and width and depth of God's love for all mankind. And they were challenged by it. And as the story continues to come up, they had to decide whether or not they wanted to be a part of it. Because the Spirit, as it moves forward, was always moving out or beginning to move outside of the categories that they had. And they had to decide if they wanted to be a part of what Christ was building. And I think for us that that question is just as true of us. Do we want to be a part of what Christ is building? Because Christ and His Spirit will always work outside of our categories. It'll always push us to go to places that we don't want and to people that we don't want. It'll always push us to go to places that we find ourselves in uncomfortable positions, asking maybe does the the love of God truly extend to that person or to this people or to this place? And I think Acts tells us that the Spirit always pushes us beyond our categories because the Great Commission is where God's love confronts our unwillingness our reluctance and our indifference towards our neighbor. And that's ironic, is it not? That we serve uh, or we believe in a gospel that we believe goes to all mankind and yet we are so prone to say, well, I believe in a gospel that's just for me and mine and we're doing okay and we forget the mission and we are a part of that mission because we are Gentiles. Christ first came to the Jews and then they came to us. We, are, we were outsiders. And as we consider the Great Commission for us, it challenges us in how we view our neighbor because, quite frankly, it's much easier to put them into categories than it is to uh, take Christ to them and to share the gift of, of life that we have been given and to see our neighbor with the same eyes with which Jesus sees them, to see them in their need. And I am preaching to myself today because um, I have all my neighbors categorized. And quite frankly, I am not, I'm not a good neighbor, okay? So here are my neighbors and the categories that I have placed them in. One neighbor across the street is the unfriendly neighbor, all right? Because I wave to them, and they seem to be making it a sport as to how long they can go without waving back at me. And so uh, that guy is kind of doing his own thing. My other neighbor, they're never home, all right? They're always working, okay? And then my other neighbor... They're the family that never leaves because they're always at home and they never come out of their house. And then my other neighbor that just recently left, they were the dog family because they had a pit bull in the backyard that I got some counsel from Brian Hartger about the certain legalities of what I could and could not do to that dog. So then they recently moved and I'm like, finally, that family is out of here. They took that dog with them. And then since Jesus has a sense of humor, that family that moved in, the husband is actually the officer that's in charge of the canine unit for the Rockwall Police Department. And so now there's two dogs. And so evidently I smell like narcotics because they are aggressively barking at me as I leave for work every morning and when I'm working outside in the yard. I have categories for all of them as I was considering how I engage my neighbor this week. And I think we have to recognize those categories and why it's important that we can easily do that because often those categories are the first instinct that we have as for a reason why we should not move towards our neighbor. 
We use it as an excuse, perhaps a justification and as a reason not to be a Christian neighbor that moves towards them. So maybe my unfriendly neighbor, I say, well, he's unfriendly and obviously doesn't care about me and so I'll just leave him alone. And my whole <laughs> call to discipleship and bearing witness is just because the guy won't wave at me. And then I have the, the neighbor that, you know, is always working and busy and I say, well, if they were just home, then, you know, I'd move towards them, but, you know, they're, they're not home. But I wouldn't move towards them if they were home because my other neighbor, they're home all the time. They never leave, but I don't go to them. I think we have to recognize the fact that those categories often become the justification for why we wouldn't move towards our neighbor. And we have all sorts of classifications and, and boxes that we put those around us in. And I can certainly confess that the Great Commission and Acts challenges me to understand my own reluctance and unwillingness to move towards my neighbor, but also the simplicity with which we view our neighbor. Because perhaps that family works as many hours as they do because they're trying to keep a business afloat, a family business to keep it from going under to provide for their family. Or maybe my next door neighbor, or maybe they had tragedy strike in their family that I don't even know about. And so because of that, they have lived with years of grief. And so inside the walls of their home is the only place that they feel safe. Instead of going out to a world that just feels broken and chaotic. The challenge of the Great Commission is to recognize also that we are, we are prone to simply look at others at the surface and we forget the soul. We forget that our neighbors around us have desperate needs. And Acts 10 is an invitation to see our neighbor, to see the world with the eyes of Christ. And that is the challenge that Peter had to wrestle with himself. Because Peter had walls in his heart that had to be broken down, and he had categories that needed to be reoriented and to understand the gospel in a new light. And so he's in Joppa, and he goes up on the rooftop to pray while dinner is being prepared, and he, has a tr or he falls into a trance, and he sees a vision. And in this vision, the sheet is lowered down with all of these animals in it, that are these animals and beasts and reptiles, with all sorts of animals that were unlawful to eat because these animals were unclean. And then God tells Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Feast on what's before you. And so, of course, Peter says, no, I won't touch anything that is common. Because Peter does not want to, he refuses because he doesn't want to eat anything unclean because these animals would have made him unclean and to need purification according to the dietary laws within Judaism. So to understand his vision a little bit, we have to understand these dietary laws and why they existed in the first place. If you go back to the Old Testament, God gives these, these, all these dietary laws to Israel and how they would eat whenever Israel came out of Egypt after the Exodus, and God gives the law and explains to Israel how they will be his people. And so, if you look at the end of Leviticus 20 and other places in uh, other parts or, in other, or elsewhere in Deuteronomy, you'll see that God uh, says that Israel will not eat anything that's unclean, and they have to differentiate between, you know, beast and reptile and bird as to what's unclean and what is not unclean. And so they had to distinguish between clean and unclean based on certain criteria that God gave them. So they had to ask questions like, does the animal uh, have a split hoof or a solid hoof? Does the animal chew its cud or does it not chew its cud? Does the animal crawl on its belly or does it walk on all fours? And so based on this criteria, they knew what they could and couldn't eat. They could eat beef, but they couldn't eat pork. They could eat goat, but not shellfish. And so if any of them broke these laws, they became ceremonially unclean and they required purification. And if they became unclean, then they risked being cut off from the people and they were liable for judgment. 
Now, these are not simple laws. If they would have become unclean, then they had to be separated from the people, undergone a season and time of purification, and then come back in to life, or back into life within the community. And so, no one knows exactly why each of these individual laws existed, you know, why it does. Like, why, what's the difference between a split hoof and a solid hoof? No one knows it necessarily has, or really has any answers to why they existed in and of themselves, but God does say explicitly why they exist as a whole. It says that these, these dietary laws are always situated in the context of how God is revealing to Israel how they will be separate from all other nations in the world. And he said that these laws will set Israel apart, even down to the food that they eat from all other nations. And he would end with this constant refrain where he would say, Israel, you are called to be holy and set apart from all other people in the world, just as I am holy and set apart from all other gods. And so do not underestimate the importance of these dietary laws and this vision. Because these dietary laws were a major, major contributor to Israel's religious and nationalistic identity as to who they were for 1,500 years. And then we get to Acts 10, and in one vision, all of it gets turned on top of its head. You have God come to Peter out of nowhere with all of these unclean animals, and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Try the pig. You'll love it. I call it bacon. It's amazing. And so, of course, Peter says, no, I don't touch anything that's unclean. I don't touch anything that's common. And God says to him, do not call anything common that I have made clean. He says it three times. Do not call common what I have made clean. You can imagine Peter is confused because one of the biggest cultural markers of his identity has just been pulled or flipped on top of its head. And he doesn't understand what this vision actually means until he comes face to face with Cornelius four days later. The Spirit tells him to go with these servants, these messengers from Cornelius, and he does. And then he sees Cornelius in his house, and Cornelius falls down on his face before Peter, desperate and humbled, and waiting to hear what it is that Peter would have him say. So, so ready to hear it that he gathers all of his family and all of his friends so that they too might share in what he was expecting and hoping that Peter would offer to them. And whenever Peter sees uh, uh, Cornelius and hears of the testimony of the vision that he had received, then he understands the vision. Then, it comes, then he comes full circle and recognizes what has happened. And he makes this statement. He says, I now see that there is no partiality in God, that God shows no partiality whatsoever. Now, what is Peter actually saying? We, we don't really know how Peter got to that conclusion because we're not really given insight into his, his thinking process from the moment he leaves his house confused until he sees Cornelius and now he understands. But I think to, we can kind of surmise what it is that the Spirit revealed to him as he chewed on what this vision meant that would lead him to say what he did and to come to this conclusion. If you think about Peter at the beginning of this passage, we have to recognize that Peter is a slave to his culture and his time. He's still informed, even now, by the reigning prejudice of his Jewish culture. And it has blinded him 
to the reality of Christ's work and what he is doing in the world. And I don't think any of Peter's prejudice, Jewish prejudice, is intentional. I think it's just like any other form of prejudice that we see in our broken world. It feels normal. It feels right. And so we can understand how it is that Peter would have, co- would have interpreted the Great Commission up until this point. And you are not included because it would have gone like this. Go into all the world, baptizing the Jews in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Peter's world is far too small because he believed in a gospel that went out to my tribe, my tongue, and my nation. And how could he fully participate in what Christ was building unless that wall came crashing down? And my take with his vision is that it caused him to go back and revisit the purpose of this law that he took identity in. And it caused him to go back and to consider how Israel had used the law for its own purpose. Yes, God gave Israel laws to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world. And yes, he wanted them to be distinct from the other nations, but it was so that they would display the character of God to the world. But that would only happen if Israel would look inward, if the law caused them to look inward at themselves. But Israel was always looking outward at the world with an air of superiority and an air of self-righteousness. And so they would say, we're insiders and you're outsiders because we have the law and we know what it takes to please God. And you don't have the law, and so how can you please God? And so it caused this sense of entitlement and self-righteousness to grow within Israel. And so the law essentially was not about generating self-righteousness. It was about generating repentance, and they never understood that. The law was intended to make Israel look inward at at their own heart and see their corruption, to see the darkness within them, to see the sickness in their heart, to see the uncleanness that resided within them, and to ask questions like, why is it that I have to make sacrifices over and over and over and over again? How unclean am I? But they never got to that place. And if they did get to that place, then what would they have done? They would have realized how desperate they are before God, and they would have been just like Cornelius was. Desperate to hear the good news from God. Desperate to hear how it is that God might come and rescue them. Hearing, or to hear the good news that the prophets told them for 1,500 years, and yet Israel continued to ignore it because they didn't want to look inward at their own heart. So in the end, the law was never meant to show Israel's closeness with God. It was supposed to reveal their distance and to be desperate and helpless before him. And in that context, Jesus comes along. He never sinned, never required a sacrifice, never became unclean. And he was the one that fully consecrated his entire being to the Father and fulfilled every line of the law. And when that happened, the question changes for Peter. Because the question is no longer, are you found within the boundary markers and cultural markers of the law? The question becomes, are you found within the one who fulfills the law? So think about it this way. Maybe Peter would put it to you like this. Is that when Jesus came to this earth and he fulfilled the law and was obedient in all things, unless you can pull that off, then that means all of us are outsiders both Jew and Gentile alike. 
because if Jesus is the perfect expression of what is pleasing and acceptable to God, then who could dare claim to be able to stand side by side with him? And so in light of Christ, of course, the dietary laws had fallen because there's now no longer any need to distinguish between humanity in those kinds of ways. Because of Christ, he lumps all of mankind into one category, and that's that we stand condemned and bankrupt before Jesus and in desperate need of his grace, his compassion, and his mercy. And if there's any human being that had the right to discriminate between humanity, it was him. And yet he does not. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And so in light of that, how could Peter continue to hold Cornelius or anybody else to a law that he couldn't keep himself? To do so would be like walking into a prison and hearing all of the inmates argue about who's more guilty while they all sit on death row. And that we would find reasons to divide instead of understanding what it is that unites. And we can only understand what unites in light of Christ and what he has done and who he is. And so whenever Peter says, I now understand that there is no partiality in God, what's he saying to Cornelius? He's saying, Cornelius, I occupy no special place. I am just like you and you are just like me because we both desperately need Jesus. And I see you in your need. We were both common, but we have been made clean. And in that statement, is Peter not now, is he not now ready to be a part of what Christ is building? He moved towards his neighbor on the common ground of depravity and God's grace as opposed to setting up some superficial division or wall between them. To find common ground is a powerful thing. I came across the story of Daryl Davis a few months ago. Daryl Davis is a uh, black piano player the only reason I say he's black is for the purpose of our story. But he's a black piano player that came up in the rock and roll movement as it just blew up in the United States. And he, uh, at the end of his career, about 30 years ago, he just started going around uh, a circuit, playing in bars, playing shows. And one night he'd finished a show in Maryland, and a guy walks up to him, a white guy named Mike. And he said, man, I loved your music. That was fantastic. And Daryl said, my goodness, thank you so much. Why don't you sit down? Let's, let's talk. So they sat down, and, and then Mike said, you know, I've never heard a black man play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And Daryl laughed, having come up in the movement, and he said, don't you know who taught Jerry Lee Lewis how to play the piano? And he's like, no way. Jerry Lee Lewis invented rock and roll, man. So Daryl's like, okay, whatever. This guy's in a different spot. So he continues to talk to him. And towards the end of their conversation, Mike says, uh, you were the first black man I've ever sat down and shared a drink with. And Daryl's like, oh, you're pretty old. All of a sudden, now you have, how come? And why does it take you so long? And he said, well, I'm an imperial wizard in the Ku Klux Klan. So (laughs) Daryl's like trying to think about ways to get out of this conversation. Like this just got really, really awkward. And instead of hitting the eject button, he thought to himself, you know what, here I have this guy in front of me. I'm going to see if I can find what's common between us. They both shared this love for the music, and so he just started talking to him about the music and what they shared in common. And they kind of had a nice conversation. And at the end of it, Mike just said, you know what, I'll tell you what, if you ever come back in town, why don't you call me and let me know? Because I'd like to come hear you play again. So he slid him his number, and so Daryl said, okay, sure. 
And he actually wrestled with it because he knew it was going to be coming back to that bar. And over the weeks and months after that, he finally decided to make that phone call when he went back. And he did. And so Mike showed up. And then they found themselves kind of just having this really strange friendship between a black piano player and a white KKK member just hanging out in the bars talking about music. And Daryl had to deal with all sorts of things that Mike would say that would otherwise make him want to leave the opportunity to have a friendship, but he stayed in it. And there was this one conversation that they had that Daryl will tell where they're sitting in Daryl's car. And Mike made the comment, he said, we all know that the black man is more prone to violence because they have a gene in them. And Daryl said, my goodness, Mike, that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. You know me. I have never once been violent towards you. I have never, I've never committed a crime. I've never even been in a fight. I don't even like violence. And Mike said, yeah, well, your gene is just latent. And so Daryl's like, goodness gracious, here you go again, Mike. And he thought, how do I find common ground in this difficult situation? This person that's really hard to love and makes it hard to love sometimes. So finally he thought about something. He said, he said uh, Mike, can you name for me a black serial killer? And Mike thought about it and said, no. And he said, well, think about this. How about Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, uh, son of Sam Killer, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. He said, those are all white men. You must be a serial killer. I should be afraid of you. And, and Mike said, man, that is the, I have never killed anybody whatsoever. Daryl says, well, that's because your gene must be latent. And uh, Mike said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And Daryl just said, yeah, you're right. It is stupid because that's not true of you. But it's no more stupid than what you just said of me. And he got Mike and Mike went silent. And then he changed the subject a little bit later. And five months later, Mike came to Daryl and he gave him a gift. He gave him his KKK Imperial Wizard robe and hood. And he said, I'm out. He said, I don't believe it anymore because of your friendship with me. Thank you. And that opened Daryl up to be able to have all sorts of relationships that he never thought possible. But he said he would always try and find, as Mike would introduce him to other KKK members, he would always try to find what was common and not allow them to determine the conversation and the division that they wanted to discuss, but to always find what was common between them. And it was effective because over 30 years, he's seen over 200 men leave the KKK because of their friendship with him. And they all gave him their robe and their hood. And he's got a whole collection of them. And he wants to start a museum. It's a powerful thing to find what is common. And because of Christ, as Christians, do we not know what is common to us all? Do we not know what is common between you and me and every person that we come across? And we exist in a culture in which we would otherwise continue to focus on all the divisions that don't amount to a hill of beans in the eternal conversation. And we know the one thing that does unite all of us, and that is our desperate need of Jesus Christ. And how often do we forget that? How often does our culture forget that? I mean, if you just listen to the way the church talks, it's almost like we forgot that we are sinners. And as we think about that, might we also recognize that there's just things that we place between us and our neighbor? There's things that we would place that would allow us the justification or the reasoning or the excuses to move away and not move towards. And maybe it's not blatant racism for you, I get that. But maybe it's just simply your pride because you're afraid of what to say and you don't feel like you're particularly gifted at going to your neighbor. 
as though there's any scriptures that say it comes down to what you say and your gifting. There's just a call to go. Or maybe you place your political affiliations and you don't really go to your neighbor because he's that guy because you remember what sign he had in his yard during the election and it was not for your candidate. Or maybe it's just your fear of rejection because we value our reputation more than we do that Christ values that person and would use you to draw them to himself. It could be age. It could be money. It could be the size of their house. It could be the fact that they're a homeschooler or a public schooler. Might we resist the urge to put something between us and our neighbor and to recognize that we know what is common to us all. What is common between us and our neighbor and our need for Christ. And if we recognize that, just like Peter, now we are of use. Because now we can actually move towards our neighbor with compassion. We can move towards our neighbor with the same compassion that was extended to us all throughout history, all the way down to this story of Cornelius and Peter. And when we move towards the world in compassion, we can see them in their need, and then we can see them the way that Christ would see them. And so what is it that makes a church worth growing in the first place? A church worth growing is a church that's willing to share in God's heart for the world. And that we are not the arbiters of who does and doesn't get to receive the same grace that we have been given. And there is a Cornelius in your life. There is a person that is waiting to hear from you, that is waiting to hear of the life that's inside of you. And kind of the strange thing about this story is that Peter tells him, you've, you've already heard of what's happened with Jesus. You've already heard of what, with John the Baptist. It's not as though they'd never heard of the name of Jesus. It's just the way that this story was written was that Cornelius came to faith when Peter told him about Jesus. That the Spirit worked and orchestrated these circumstances so that when he heard of what God was doing in and through Peter, that's when he came to faith, and that's when the Spirit fell. And there is someone that is waiting in your life to hear the gospel in your words, in your tongue, and in of his work in you. We live in Texas. Everybody's heard of it. Everybody has heard of the name of Jesus, but there's someone in your life that is waiting to hear it through your story and your experience and what God is doing through you. And the same thing that awaits you is the same thing that awaited for Peter when he came to Cornelius. It wasn't until Peter came face to face with Cornelius that in that moment he had the realization and it, it all came, became clear and he recognized a bigger savior and a bigger gospel and a bigger mission than he ever understood before. And it became real in a way that it never would have been if he stayed on the rooftop and didn't go to his neighbor. That same thing awaits us, that is we would move towards our neighbor and we see them face to face. It's in those moments that the power of the gospel and the mission that we've been invited into and the power that's at work in the world becomes far more real to us. Are we a church worth growing? Well, might we be a church that's willing to share in God's heart for the world? Rockwell Prez, rise, kill, and eat. Let's pray. Jesus, you are other than us in ways that we could not possibly comprehend, and yet you move towards us. We could not, uh, in 10,000 lifetimes, comprehend the full measure of your love and goodness towards us. Whatever future you have for us as a church, might it be one that above all else, 
we treat you as the most precious gift that we have been given and that we would desire to honor you by sharing in your heart for the world around us. We definitely need your grace in this and I need your grace in this. Give us your eyes and give us your heart as we come to your table this morning. We ask all this in Christ's name and everybody said, amen.